Hey, Vince McMahon, it's time for this week's Stick to Wrestling podcast. Who the hell do you think you are? come back no more no more no more no more i want to thank ray charles for writing that song in anticipation of me being able to dedicate that song to someone from queens not me and not brian laugh but someone from queens welcome to stick to wrestling my name is john mcadam this is the only wicked good wrestling podcast out there it is the people's podcast it is the major league of professional wrestling podcasts Listening to Stick to Wrestling once a week for 60 minutes, it's like exercising once a week for 60 minutes. It's fun, but it's not going to do you any good. I've been meaning to do this for, for like two or three weeks now. Chris Zellner, friend of mine, I've been a guest on his podcast, was recently sick with the COVID virus. His whole family got it. Chris got sick, but not terribly sick. His brother, on the other hand, was on oxygen in the hospital for nine consecutive days. So I just want to wish Chris and his family the very best. I also want to encourage everyone to wear a mask. Why do you wear a mask in public? Because if you have it and you don't know it, it, the mask prevents you from transmitting the virus to other people. Let's get out of this. Let's get our lives back. Please wear a mask. And with that said, Please follow me on Twitter. If you search John McAdam and follow the two guys fighting with chairs, your life is a happier place. If you enjoy the Stick to Wrestling podcast, join us on Facebook. Uh, We have a Facebook group. It is wicked good. And for example, you get to ask questions that lead to being on this show. Christopher Brand. Well, I live in Kenosha, John. Tell me your story about Kenosha, Wisconsin. And this ties into our guest, by the way. I was in Chicago, and a friend of mine, actually WCW referee Scott Dickinson, wanted to travel to Milwaukee to see the Milwaukee Brewers play baseball. And my friend in Chicago advised me, take the Kenosha line. Well, guess where the Kenosha line takes you? Hint, it rhymes with Kenosha, not Milwaukee. So I'm stuck in this town that I've never heard of before. No offense to anyone who lives in Kenosha. I just never heard of it before. With no plan, no idea on how to get out of there, we finally found a bus that took us to Milwaukee, and we got in in the fourth inning. With that said, I have been to exactly 22 Major League Baseball stadiums, not counting minor leagues. That includes like old Baltimore, new Baltimore, old Cleveland, new Cleveland. It doesn't count Montreal twice, like, you know, roof, no roof. It's the same stadium. My guest, Al Getz blows that number away. Al, thank you for coming on the show. How many stadiums have you been to? Well, if we're counting currently active MLB stadiums, the answer is all but one. Yes. I had been to all of them, but Globe Life, I forget which one was the old one and which one was the new one, but one is Globe Life Field and the other is Globe Life Park. I um, did not go to the new one. I was planning on going this year for their first home game with the goal of being the first fan in the world to set foot in that stadium that had been to all the others, but the COVID took care of that. Uh, you also mentioned Chris Zellner earlier. I actually I talked to him a few weeks ago when I was a guest on BTS right after his recovery, and it sounds like he's on the road to recovery, but again, a lot of people are having a very difficult time with this. And you mentioned Ray Charles, so I guess it's appropriate that I say I've got Georgia on my mind as I live in uh, Atlanta. There you go. Have you always lived in Atlanta, or are you from Atlanta? No, I'm from New York. I grew up on Long Island. Then I lived in Asheville, North Carolina for many years. I moved to Atlanta in 2003, so I've now been here over 17 years. All right. And now let me ask you, when did you first become a wrestling fan? Like what year, how old were you, and where did you live? I was living in New York, but where my first exposure to wrestling, I was visiting my grandparents in Florida as little Jewish boys from New York often do. Uh, I would have been, I don't know the exact year, but it was probably 80 or 81. And I was flipping through channels on the TV and I saw this incredibly charismatic man talking on the microphone. I don't even know if my brain registered that this was wrestling, but he was so captivating and so charismatic that I remember thinking to myself, 
This is the coolest thing ever. Not only that, but I don't know what this is, but I want to do it. Well, that man was the American dream, Dusty Rhodes, and he was a professional wrestler. That is pretty awesome. Now, tell us a little bit about your podcast, which is part of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network, Charting the Territories. <laughs> I'm like, booking the territories? No, charting the territories. Tell us about it. Yeah, no, booking is, is Jeff Bowdrin's purview. Yeah. Uh, my podcast and blog is called Charting the Territories. In addition to being a wrestling fan in the real world for many years, I was an actuary. I studied actuarial science and finance at Georgia State University and have always been interested in data analysis and statistics and all that sort of thing, which I guess explains my baseball fandom. But the idea was to try and come up with some statistics that tell us things about wrestling that real world statistics don't quite do. You really can't use things like win-loss records in pro wrestling because it, it just doesn't quite work that way. We also don't have complete enough attendance records to be able to do something with that, even though we know, you know, for the Brunos of the world, how many times they sold out the garden or how many times Ray Stevens drew, you know, 12,000 or more at the cow palace. But for the everyday run of the mill house shows, we don't have much information other than what the lineup was. And I actually came up with a way to sort of convert house show lineups into statistics that tell us where a wrestler was positioned or slotted on the card if they were a main eventer or a mid card or a preliminary wrestler and so on and so forth and so the podcast charting the territories talks about the numbers we sort of take a snapshot of a territory and it's usually the leroy mcgurk and or bill watts territory at a fixed point in time and sort of run down the roster and see how they're positioned on the cards how that changes over time and who they're feuding with at the time. Now, I love what you do, and I'm very curious about something. First of all, I want to applaud you because my idea now of doing research is Googling something. Your idea of doing research is actually going to the library and doing like hardcore, finding out, you know, what shows were actually took place. You know, you, you dig deeper, way deeper than most people do. The idea is there is a lot of information out there on such great sites such as the history of wwe.com, wrestlingdata.com, cagematch.net. But for most of the territories, it's still a fraction of what's out there. Uh, for some territories, it's maybe, you know, mostly complete, but not complete. For other territories, not so much. So I have worked diligently at visiting libraries and state archives, mostly in the Southeast, actually. As we're recording this, I'm two days away from going to Topeka, Kansas, to check out the Kansas State Archives up there. But uh, when we look at the McGurk Territory, my database for a 27-year period currently has over 14,500 cards in it, more than half of which are quote-unquote new and are not on any of the major sites or books or message forums dedicated to wrestling. So we are slowly but surely chopping away at the missing shows for all these territories. Dude, you are a hero. You are traveling from Atlanta, Georgia to Topeka, Kansas to provide us information about pro wrestling. And not just pro wrestling, but the central states territory. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, all the Omar Atlas fans in the world. Oh, sorry. The one Omar Atlas fan in the world will be ecstatic at the research I am going to get. Uh, that, that is truly amazing. And I think I, I'm thanking you on behalf of a lot of people. Now, most of the data that I have seen you put out is from the pre-Bill Watts McGurk territory, which was Oklahoma and Louisiana if I, and Mississippi. If I'm, Am I correct there? It varies over time. Uh, it originally was Oklahoma plus parts of Arkansas and Missouri. And as beginning in 1961, there's a foray into Louisiana and then a quick retraction, although they stay in the northern part of the state running Shreveport and Monroe. Uh, it's not until 1968 that they open Louisiana back up. But at that point, it's a satellite territory that is run by Ani Wiki Wiki and uh, one of the Golden family. I always get the Goldens mixed up. And by late 1970, it's sort of fully integrated into the rest of the McGurk territory, as well as Mississippi with George Culkin, who wrestled as George Curtis. He was the local promoter in Mississippi. Okay. So now what attracted you to select that territory 
as sort of your specialty? I was looking for a large territory with a lot of history that is underserved and underappreciated. Uh, And with the exception of the Mid-South era from 1979, you know, to 1986 and then the UWF era into 87, there just isn't as much info on this territory, which existed, you know, for decades before it became, you know, the split that created Mid-South wrestling. And one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time and perhaps the greatest collegiate athlete, not collegiate wrestler, but collegiate athlete of all time and probably the best amateur wrestler turned pro wrestler of all time. My apologies to Mr. Angle, but Danny Hodge was, you know, a fixture of the territory for virtually all of his career. He was a homesteader there. Now, Danny Hodge, he was a little bit undersized, but he was still a main eventer in that territory. Am I largely correct? Yes. For much of the territory's existence, it was based around junior heavyweights. And this goes into the promoter Leroy McGurk's background as a former junior heavyweight champion. It didn't always, it wasn't exclusive to junior heavyweights. Waldo Von Erich had some runs there in the early 60s. You know, other heavyweight wrestlers would be in there. But the NWA World Junior Heavyweight title, despite being a world title, was mostly defended in the McGurk territory and was held by wrestlers that were full-time in that area. Okay, so... Tell us a little bit about the methodology you use to basically tell us what you do as far as your site goes, as far as your your podcast goes, like how you determine uh, you have a what's it called? You have a score that you give the wrestlers. Tell us all about that. Yeah. The statistic that I, for lack of a better term, invented, which it sounds awfully, you know, uh, grandiose, but I, I don't like to brag, but I invented a statistic and I called it statistical position over time. And you'll notice that way its acronym is S P O T or spot. (laughs) Yes. So we call it a spot rating and what it does, it measures a wrestler's average position or spot on the cards. As I mentioned earlier, you know, there are preliminary wrestlers that usually wrestle in the opening matches and there are main eventers that usually wrestle in the main event. I came up with a way of making a number and how it works in general terms. Let's say a wrestling event has five matches on it, and we look at the ad in the newspaper, and we look at the program or a newspaper article. I basically rank the matches in what I call order of perceived importance, which is almost always the order they're listed in the ad. You know, the main event gets top billing. You know, the opening match is on the bottom. Based on the number of matches, I then assign a decimal. So if there are five matches on a card, the first match, the opening match, would get a one divided by five or a 0.2. The second match would get two divided by five and so on and so forth. So the main event would get a one, which is five divided by five. And so for each card I have records for, I come up with this number. And then from there, I use what I call a rolling weighted five-week period to come up with a weekly spot rating for a wrestler, taking into account all of their bookings for that week and the two weeks before and the two weeks after. This gives me, it sort of smooths the curve and gives me a large enough set of data that the numbers don't jump around too much. And what we find is, you know, wrestlers have spots. And if someone is a main eventer, they're generally in the main events. Uh, If someone is new to the territory, they often start lower on the card and they are built up with a series of wins over progressively more difficult opponents until they get to a certain level at which point they generally stay there while, as long as they're in the territory, which, as you know, in those days often was just a few months, uh, uh-huh. sometimes more, sometimes less. And on their way out, sometimes they are pushed down the cards and are putting new guys over on their way out. But also sometimes they're actually even moved up the cards slightly on their way out, whereas they have major stipulation, blow off matches, loser leave town, you know, hair versus hair, where they can do a meaningful job on their way out of the territory. Now, I bet a lot of people are saying, okay, that number is going to be imperfect. And I'm sure I'll realize it's it's imperfect, but it gives you a lot of information as far as where a wrestler generally was on a card. Like one could be hypercritical. One could say, okay, in 1983, Jimmy Snooker versus Don Morocco was the number two match on a Madison Square Garden card. 
but that you know carried a lot more weight than a typical number two match. But I mean, I'm I'm sure you realize that, and that doesn't take away from the fact that that number gives you a great deal of information as far as where a wrestler typically was on a card. Was he a main event or was he a mid carder, etc.? Right, and the law of large numbers takes care of those idiosyncrasies. And the other thing I would say, if Snooka Morocco is such a strong number two match for the Garden, in all likelihood, it is main eventing smaller venues around that same time. Thus, when I take the overall average of all of these bookings, it will be stronger. But yes, it is far from perfect. What surprised me when I first started doing this was uh, if you have enough data, how consistent the numbers are. I mean, yes, sometimes people you know, move up and down slightly, but once someone is established in a territory, their spot is their spot, unless their role changes by moving into a tag team or moving out of a tag team or turning. Generally speaking, whatever someone's role is, their position on the card doesn't waver all that much over time. And it actually surprised me. But yes, there are all sorts of idiosyncrasies and little things and quirks in the system. And I also value a you know, a card at the Superdome in front of 28,000, the exact same amount as I do a show in Greenville, Mississippi with a much smaller crowd. Again, using all available house shows, the sort of law of averages, the law of large numbers sort of puts everything in its right place. Yeah. And, and believe me, I am defending your, the number that you come up with. I mean, you'll understand this. 50 home runs, I and mean, we, we take home runs in baseball as an absolute statistic, but we know that 50 home runs in Colorado is less valuable than 50 home runs in Philadelphia or Washington. Exactly, and that's why we have the podcast, because instead of just throwing numbers out at people, we want to add context to it. And so when numbers you know, seem off or when you know something doesn't quite seem right, we can usually come up with a reason why that was the case. There are you know, instances of wrestlers not being full-time in a territory. They're sort of on a part-time basis. And with that, if we don't have enough you know, house show bookings for them, this spot rating actually does fluctuate more than someone you know, who is working six nights a week. So we can you know, look at these numbers, and when something seems off, we can dig in deeper and try and understand why. So, you know, the idea, it's, it's a conversation piece. Uh, as I mentioned to Brian when I was on the 605, the idea is to come up with some basic back of the baseball card stat lines for wrestlers, which no one has really done before, and make it something that can be applied to all wrestlers, not just the, you know, the, the main eventers or the Hall of Famers. Now, you see, if, if one might think, and I, I've listened to your podcast, Alan. I really enjoy it. I've I've listened to two episodes. How many episodes have you had so far? I believe six, five or six. We do one a month, and I believe the first one was in June. Okay, yeah, I remember it was it was hot out when I was listening to it. In a way, it all sounds kind of dry. Like, um, oh, we're looking at wrestlers' numbers. That how entertaining could that be? But I, I found you and John Boucher, who has been a guest on the show. It is a fun and informative show, and you not only learn where the wrestler's spot, there's that word again, uh, typically was on the McGurk card, but you know, you guys are fun to listen to. Yeah. And that's why I was so glad I uh, stumbled upon John as a co-host because we both are pretty knowledgeable about wrestling, but our wheelhouses are very different. Our time eras uh, that we are sort of knowledgeable about are different and thus complement one another. And yeah, I didn't want a podcast where I'm just reading off numbers. That's what the blog does. If you want to look at the most boring spreadsheets you've ever seen in your life, go to my blog. Um, but once we put that out there, the podcast then sort of digs into that and offers some exposition. And John always comes up with these great stories. It's so hard because I assume our listener base is as knowledgeable as us. So it's really hard to come up with stories about some of these wrestlers that our listeners might not know about. But we tried to do that. I know John at one point talked about the story of Danny McShane, where he, in a match, broke Ted Lewin's nose, and then a week later met Ted's sister and ended up marrying her. <laughs> <laughs> I, have not, I had not heard that story before. I remember you telling it on the podcast. I mean, believe me, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff that, like, I don't know. And, you know, I've been following wrestling closely for all, you know, almost 50 years now. So, I mean, get that information out there. 
Yeah, people love those stories. So, you know, we start out with these statistics, but the podcast doesn't go too deep into those. We try and make it a lot more like the VH1 behind the music. Although, you know, I don't like talking about the, you know, the backstage dirt necessarily or, you know, things like that. But we try and, you know, just add a little more information to these wrestlers so that the listeners can realize that they're more than just wrestlers. They're humans and they had lives. I think on our next episode, we're going to be talking about Bobby Jaggers who's someone that I think everyone knows, but doesn't really know much about him other than he was a wrestler and he was probably a tag team specialist and he wrestled in a lot of places. John is digging up some details on him. I'll tell you, I did a very quick search on Google and and there's a lot more to his life story. So that's just one of the things that we want to bring to life with the podcast. Now, Bobby Jaggers, he was a legit Vietnam veteran, was he not? See, you just ruined the whole damn thing. I'm good at that. (laughs) No, it's okay. Uh, (laughs) Yes, he was a Vietnam vet and after the war was sort of struggling career-wise and also, you know, mentally. And I forget who it was, but he encountered or befriended a professional wrestler who sort of took him under his wing. And in many ways, wrestling probably saved him from just floating through life after the war or, you know, heaven forbid, you know, perhaps you know, his life going a certain way. Uh, I know in my time in independent wrestling, uh, I worked with a wrestler uh, who worked in Wildside and had a cup of coffee and ring of honor, Slim J. Uh, I don't know if you know the name, but Slim J was legitimately a teenage delinquent who has been in and out of trouble with the law in his teens. And he credits pro wrestling with saving his life. He said, if it wasn't, if he hadn't gotten into wrestling as a teenager, He would have ended up in jail, you know, for a long time as an adult or dead. And so as dirty a business as pro wrestling has been and can be, there are some good stories of people. On last month's podcast, we talked about both Paul Ellering and Len Rossi. Those are two men who, when their in-ring wrestling career was over, they found productive careers afterwards. Of course, Paul's was still in wrestling and Len's was not, but you know, those are stories we don't often hear with the popularity of Dark Side of the Ring. We tend to think about the bad stories, and it's nice to focus on the good stories every now and then. And they are out there. Not a lot of them, but let's be <laughs> honest, but, but there are, yes. I mean, you know, and, and, and going down the road, you're going to, I mean, poor Bill Mercer. I mean, anytime someone wants to do a shoot interview with him or whatever, it's like, yeah, talk about the Von Erics doing drugs. What was it like backstage? In world class and and Bill, I, I'll bet at the time he just he didn't care. He's like, okay, they're doing whatever they're doing. I'm, you know, I'm not obsessed with this. Right. In my case, having worked in wrestling on the independent level, you know, I I see all these things, so it's not as interesting to me. And and uh, you know, I think to drill down a a wrestler's life to all the wacky antics he did in the dressing room or on the road is not doing them service. Uh, hopefully, there are other aspects of their life worth discussing and talking about. And, you know, yeah, that's how I feel about it. Yeah. I've worked with so many wrestlers over the years and, you know, most of them are just guys that uh, might be undereducated and, you know, went into wrestling uh, to try it up. There are a lot of highly educated people that uh, became professional wrestlers that forwent a career in the quote unquote real world to become a full-time professional wrestler. Yeah, now here's something I want to talk about. You actually, you've mentioned this. You got into wrestling as an independent. Can you tell us, first of all, what you got into and what you did? Sure. I was, for most of my career, I was a manager. My first ring name was the Duke of New York. I was living in North Carolina at the time. As I mentioned previously, I'm originally from New York. So it was that whole Yankee, you know, versus Southerner type of heat. Yeah. I uh, started using the name Al Getz after I started uh, working for Burt Prentice's Music City Wrestling as a color commentator in 1998. I worked for Omega Wrestling, which was the birthplace of Matt and Jeff Hardy, uh, Shannon Moore, Joey Mercury, Steve Carino, among others. I worked for Bo James's Southern States Wrestling for many years. I worked for NWA Wildside, worked for Music City Wrestling, and actually took a brief detour to Northern California to work for Roland Alexander's All Pro Wrestling in wow. uh, late 1998. Now, wrestling, even in the 90s, I mean, the wall was coming down a little bit. In the 80s, it was like, you know, getting into wrestling was like getting into the mafia. You know, they didn't let an outsider in, but that kind of started coming down in the, the early to mid 90s. Like, how did you first get your foot in the door? 
I got my foot in the door by contacting a local independent promotion in uh, Western North Carolina and somehow some way finagled my way into becoming the timekeeper for their events, which is as, as prestigious a position as there ever could be <laughs> oh, yeah. in small time independent wrestling. From there, I befriended one of the wrestlers and, and, and this was the plan was to get my foot in the door and wanted to convince him to sort of train me to become a manager. So that's what I wanted him to do. And he wanted someone to drive him from town to town for no money. So it was a match made in heaven. (laughs) Um, In exchange for that, again, we call it paying dues, learning the ropes, what have you. I was more than happy to do it. Also, at the same time in my day job, I had been given the task of learning how to design web pages. This was in the, uh, the mid late nineties when the internet was first becoming a thing. And I had always been computer savvy. So I was tasked with building the company's website and eventually turned that into a separate website for independent wrestling that was called wooWrestling.com. And so as an independent manager, there was an upside for promotions to bring in a manager, uh, you know, because they would get good publicity on my website and we could work out deals, you know, for me to sell their merchandise on my site. So I, I, you know, I found a way to make myself valuable because indie managers for the most part are a dime a dozen. If that they're usually local guys, friends of the promoter or, you know, ticket sellers, what have you. But I found a way to, uh, you know, create a demand for me because of the other things I offered to a, an independent promotion that would book me. I worked a lot for Dennis Coraluzzo in uh, New Jersey, in the NWA New Jersey days, Steve Carino and I would drive up together. He you know, had family up there, but he also was living in North Carolina at the time. So we would you know, drive up, work a few shows, come back down. I was also the handler of uh, Buddy Landell for a few years. Oh, you must, was, you must be able to write a book. Uh, I, again, that's not <laughs> my thing. Uh, you know, I could, I have no interest in doing so. Uh, you know, what happens on the road stays on the road. But yeah, my job was to get him to the towns uh, on time and and in a certain condition. And I will say I batted a thousand on that. He uh, always made the towns on my watch. That is good. I've been around Buddy exactly twice and I've got Buddy stories. So yeah. he must... <laughs> and I, I love Buddy to death. I thought he was a great talent that just, you know, he was his own worst enemy sometimes. But I mean, I, I was a huge fan of Buddy Landell. You had to love him, even when he did the things that he is often known for. He, he, when you just look at him, you just, ah, I love you, buddy. There's <laughs> nothing else you could say. Oh, my God. I have Buddy Landell's handler on the line. That is fantastic. <laughs> I had no idea. Um, so, you know, and we talk about, like, I'm sure when you first got in the wrestling business, like you said, you you understand the role of an indie manager. There's a lot of guys who want to do it. And. You wind up traveling a lot of miles, sometimes working for very little money, sometimes working for free. Is that pretty spot on? That's fair. You know, yeah, that's reasonable. Uh, When you look at the amount of money coming into an independent wrestling event, there's not a whole lot to go around to the wrestlers, let alone the guy whose job is, in theory, involves less work than the wrestlers. And uh, I, when I say work, I mean, you know, involvement and, and training and dedication. Uh, you can be a good manager without investing as much time uh, as a pro wrestler has to. Yeah. Um, to be a really good indie manager, though, you have to absorb knowledge and travel different places and, and all that sort of thing. And I always said in the realm of independent wrestling managers, I was a slightly above average talent for that group. And it's probably a pyramid. There are a very small number of elite independent wrestling managers, and there are a whole lot of bad indie wrestling managers. And I was somewhere in the middle or maybe the top third of that. <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll bet you were a really good one. You know, in, in wrestling, I've always compared it to like getting into comedy or being in a band and like getting that record label trying to make it. I mean, it's, it's a long road to the top. I, I've never talked about this on the show. In the late 80s, I tried getting into comedy, and I met a local comedian, and he liked to drink at the shows, so I was his ride home, and I got 20 minutes on stage, and I would go up, and I would complain about my girlfriend, and I would not get paid, and finally, I'm like, this is not worth it. I I don't have the heart for this, and I learned that that was just like the wrestling business. I mean, if you want to get in, 
it's not an easy road to get in and you're again you're going to be doing a lot of driving you're not going to get paid etc yeah and and the odds are against you it's a numbers game i will say one of the most memorable experiences i had in independent wrestling i was working for omega wrestling in the carolinas which as i uh-huh. mentioned was where matt and jeff got their start and we were setting up the ring there were a lot of us it was most of the crew so matt jeff shane helms uh myself was there a, a few others But I remember as we're setting up the ring, uh, Matt's cell phone rang, and this would have been 97 or 98. I forget the year. So Matt just steps away and takes the call, and we're setting up the ring. And I look over at Matt, and I can't hear the conversation, but there's a look on his face that is, you know, of importance. And and, and we all slowly picked up on that, and we're just watching Matt. And we couldn't hear any, you know, the other end of the conversation. He was barely talking. It turned out it was Howard Finkel giving uh, Matt and Jeff their first uh, week of actual house show bookings. They had been doing TV for years, not years, but they'd been doing TV for a couple of years at that point. This was their first run of actual matches on house shows. And and just, you know, Matt was just so overwhelmed by that. And, and to be able to share in that moment, it's like, you know, when uh, a college football player gets the, you know, is drafted first or second. And, you know, they go to, they cut to his house where he's there with all his family and they all jump up for joy. It was a moment like that. We were all just super happy for Matt to see that he was going to be more than just an enhancement guy, you know, and, and look what happened. And he's, and he's still around. Yeah. I mean, and that's the thing, you know, a lot of guys and I'm not downsizing uh, that moment, but you know, a lot of guys get that first week of house show runs and, and they, that's all they get. That's as far as they go. I, I personally know guys who have a similar story, but I mean, obviously the Hardys have, have gone on to be just huge superstars and we're talking over a period of 20 years. Yeah. It, it's one of, one of the neat things about working in independent wrestling is you get to work with wrestlers. You grew up watching. Uh, I will never forget managing the honky tonk man in New Jersey. And I was just so ecstatic that when he started singing his song, I'm standing on the ring apron, mouthing the words. And I remember Honky <laughs> looking over me like, oh, my God, what is this schmuck I've been stuck with? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but at the same time, you also work with guys that become stars. And so, you know, you, you, know, you can be a amateur basketball player. You're never going to get to play with LeBron. But wrestling gives you that opportunity to work with your childhood heroes and to work with guys that you could say, hey, I was there when Matt Hardy got called by Howard Finkel. You know, uh, that, that is a cool I got story. powerbombed by Sid Vicious. I got to shave Bobby Fulton's back before a match. I mean, there's so many just memorable <laughs> moments that stand out, such as those. <laughs> uh, I have the feeling that you shaving Bobby Fulton's back is somehow going to work its way into the title of this show. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I'll I'll tell us a little bit more about like, okay, so you started watching wrestling in 1981. You were in Florida with your grandparents. How old were you? In 81, I would have been 10. Okay. So, and then, so you, you see this wrestling that you've never seen before or, or, and by the way, I started watching when I was 10 too. That seems to be the magic age. And like, tell us a little bit more about like how you became a wrestling fan, like how you got into it. You know, I think I continued watching it down there. So it'd be Georgia Championship Wrestling. I vividly remember the Mr. R angle from Georgia, um, yes. particularly the reveal where Tommy came out to talk with Gordon while Mr. R was in the ring. And uh, uh, was it DiBiase freaked out? It you was know, DiBiase. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I vividly, well, I guess not, not that vividly since I had to ask for a clarification, but <laughs> <laughs> mostly vividly considering it was now almost 40 years ago, I eventually found wrestling in New York. And of course this would have been the WWF right before the expansion. Uh, cause I, I remember watching chief J Strongbow, uh, you know, in, in the, you know, semi mains of the shows they would broadcast live from MSG. Uh, my first house show was two weeks before WrestleMania one. And here's what's interesting. They ran the garden two weeks before WrestleMania one. Uh-huh. It's just interesting that two weeks before the biggest show in the history of the company that will make or break them, they, they ran, you know, the same venue. 
Um, but this one was their regularly scheduled house show. And I guess WrestleMania was sort of a special event, but it was, it was Holy Morocco, right? No, that was afterwards. This okay. was Tito and Valentine in some sort of stipulation match, a six man, but the main draw was a live Piper's pit with Mr. T. Okay. I remember that one. They, they showed that on all the syndicated shows. And I want to clear something up for the listeners. The Mr. R angle took place towards the end of 1983. Ted DiBiase and Tommy Rich had been feuding in Georgia after being, you know, close friends in 1981. Now Ted DiBiase is back as a heel. They kind of quickly, almost too quickly, in my opinion, went to a loser leave town match where Tommy Rich lost due to Ted DiBiase's shenanigans. He cheated, obviously. And this was the rage in wrestling in 1983. The Good guy loses a loser leave town match under shoddy circumstances, and he comes back wearing a mask. Well, Tommy Rich comes back as Mr. R, and they have a match on TV, Mr. R against Ted DiBiase, and immediately I could tell that was not Tommy Rich. He was the guy in the ring was too small, but you know they they had him in a Adidas bodysuit to try to hide the fact that you know this wasn't Tommy Rich. And all of a sudden, Tommy Rich comes to ringside. Ted DiBiase can't believe it. He gets rolled up, and it's Brad Armstrong as Mr. R, and he is now the new national heavyweight champion. Yes, and we roll our eyes at that now, but I, as a 12-year-old kid, uh, the, the way he outsmarted that no-good DiBiase, oh, man, that was exciting. Oh, it was exciting for me, and I was 17. I loved it. I mean, I was, you know, I was like, wait a minute, that's, that's not Tommy Rich under that gear, and then the whole thing unfolded. And I thought Georgia was really hurting at that time, but that angle stood out to me as a really good one. Yeah, and that's nothing new, as you mentioned, that that had been done in other places around that time. Of course, in Mid-South uh, in 82, we had the uh, Stagger Lee angle with, uh, with uh, interestingly enough, with DiBiase as the heel. So, and, you know, nothing new in wrestling is really new. You know, it, they just kept recycling gimmicks or things that worked in other territories they would uh, say hey we did this thing here that worked let's try it here and that's the great thing about the territorial era is that i mentioned on the last episode of my podcast to john it's a very organized and structured way of throwing shit at the wall to see what sticks <laughs> uh, because in in the days of you know each market having their own version of the tv that with, with you know localized house show promos what they did was they would, you know, sort of set up a storyline on TV. Uh, they would establish why these two wrestlers have a grudge and they would, you know, run it at your local house show. And if it drew well, they would give you a non-conclusive finish to build to a rematch. If it didn't draw well in that town, they might just, you know, have the babyface go over and try something else the next week. You know this from the WWWF of Bruno and Backlund's opponents. Some heels got one month in the Spectrum and three months in the Garden and, or two months in the Boston Garden. They catered it to the market and they let market forces in each town dictate, you know, what works and how the story goes. You end up with, you know, a fan growing up in each TV market might have a slightly different take on who the top stars were. If you, if you got a one and done with, you know, say Stan Hansen as the heel, Whereas in another city, someone got three months with Stan. They might think Stan was better than the fan watching in the town where they only got one month. So it, it's really interesting to sort of look at that. And, and, you know, they didn't have pay-per-views where everything built to a crescendo at the same time. They let the attendance uh, dictate how long the feud lasted. I don't think anyone thought Lawler and Dundee would go 17 weeks in a row when they first put it together. But it kept drawing and they had no choice, uh, you know, unless they didn't want to make money. I mean, and that's the thing, like, believe me, I miss the territories more than anyone. And it will occasionally come up, you know, will the can the territories ever come back? Well, absolutely not. No, because if you were watching, you know, mid-Atlantic wrestling and you had uh, Jimmy Valiant under a mask as Charlie Brown, you know, you can't run that in the same territory where you have, you know, uh, Dusty Rhodes, the Midnight Rider, and that got done to death in 83, but you could do it in different places. And that structure just isn't there anymore. The territories are gone and they're not coming back. Yeah, uh, the the business model has changed drastically. And the thing that made the territories work literally can't happen now. So you about eight months ago, I, I used to be one of those bitter, you know, bitter wrestling fans. Like, oh, the business sucks, blah, 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 blah. It's changed. <laughs> it's horrible. Blah. 
I came to realize it has changed. It is not relevant whether it is better or worse. It is different. It would yeah. it would not have worked had it not changed. So I, you know, I don't say this is worse than it used to be. It is different. And there are people that appreciate it. And there are things about modern wrestling that I appreciate. And there are things that make me want to, you know, reach into the TV and strangle the people involved. But that is what it is. And there are the decision makers understand the revenue streams and the business model nowadays much better than I. So they are doing what they feel is best, just like the bookers and promoters in the past did what they thought was best for their territory and their neck of the woods. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. Very well stated. I mean, I enjoy. WWE, I watch their monthly uh, live events. I, I don't watch Raw or SmackDown. It's not that I don't like them. It's just I have other entertainment options. I'm like you. I'm not one of these bitter people who, uh, you know, are, hate modern wrestling and, you know, just what worked in the 70s and the 80s just isn't going to work today. Yeah. And, you know, you look at some of the more polarizing guys in All Elite. I've worked with Marco Stunt a lot uh, with some independent shows in the area here. I absolutely get it. Uh, and I think he has a unique charisma and, and if used properly, it has all sorts of value. Same thing with Orange Cassidy. He's one of the more polarizing guys. I get Orange Cassidy. I understand that it's a limited audience that gets him, but that's what wrestling is nowadays. It's much more of a niche product than it was in the WrestleMania era and the Attitude era. And to the people that are passionate about pro wrestling and about all elite wrestling, Orange Cassidy speaks to them. They absolutely understand and get it. And he pulls it off so well. That's a, a gimmick that is easy to do poorly and turn into a mockery. But man, he understands because he created it. So he he just understands how it works and how to work with it. And uh there are other guys in All Elite that make me want to change the channel. That's just the way it is. Uh, and uh, interesting enough, those are the, the three polarizing ones at the top of the cards. I think that most of li your listeners would probably be able to name without me saying so. But three of the EVPs, I just, I can't, I can't stand them. And that's, uh, I, I know they're very talented. I am not going to deny that, but they don't, they just don't work for me. No, I, I mean, you it. know, wrestling characters, they either resonate with a certain person or they don't like when the undertaker was the big star in the 1990s like i would look at him and i would just be like i don't get this guy's charisma i i'm not it's not resonating with me but at the same time well i can see he's getting a huge pop so obviously what doesn't work for me is working for other people right and if we understand that particularly in the, in the days of of running house shows the promoters were obviously going to give opportunities to a lot of people, and but they wouldn't stay on top unless they had a track record of drawing fans. Again, the, the goal of the promoters was to maximize house show revenue. And so, you know, if you don't get someone, but he's always main eventing, it's because you're in the minority. Yeah, very, very well put. And, and I mean, the wrestling business has changed so much. I mean, like you said, it used to be about drawing people to the local arena and that's that's how wrestling made money the show that was on you know up here channel 56 at 11 o'clock that was basically an infomercial to get you to go to the boston garden and you know that's what counted the attendance at the boston garden now so much of it is about television revenue and pay-per-view has mostly gone away it has gone away for the wwf i mean the business has just changed so much right and so they now look at it and they understand TV revenue is their bread and butter. Therefore, we need good time slots. We need all hands on deck. We need to present a strong product. In the case of All Elite and also the WWE to some extent, it's a delicate balance of giving you good matches, good content on free TV, while still giving you something unique enough that you're willing to pay to see it. In the case of pay-per-view or in the case of the network to, you know, devote that three-hour block once a month to watching their pay-per-view yeah i mean the old school promoters we're going back to i mean we're going all the way back to the 70s here very rarely did they put even a competitive match on television because that was their mantra they just didn't give anything out on tv i mean we would have a main event like you know tune in next week for the magnificent morocco wrestling sd jones in the main event and we're like well 
SD Jones has no chance of winning this match, but they're calling it a main event. It was all about getting you to go to the arena. And then in early 1983, we started getting world-class championship wrestling, which had main events on every show. Almost every match was competitive and world-class still drew. So that kind of killed that, that old, you know, you can't put anything good on TV attitude away. Well, here's a thing I, in sort of my study of the territories, here's a theory I've come up with. What are the two slowest paced television shows in the territorial era? Slowest paced. Uh, let me think. Uh, when I say television shows, I mean, you know, territories. Uh, what are the territories? The WWF just... and the AWA. Correct. What other thing do those two territories have in common that the other territories for the most part don't in regards to house shows? <laughs> they drew quite well. Uh, that's not what I was going for. Uh-huh. They ran on a monthly schedule. Oh, All that the is other another good point. Were weekly. So think about it. the idea is to have the pacing of your TV match the frequency of your shows. If you're running boom, boom, boom angles, you know, nonstop every week, it's something new. Then if there's only a house show once a month, a fan will feel like they're missing out on the resolution of some of these storylines because they're started and stopped before they even get to go to a show to see it play out. So the territories, they understood how to pace their TV. And it also ties into the turnover of talent. The WWF and the AWA were also had the lowest turnover rates for the most part, because again, things took longer to play out as the, you know, national expansion events happened. He was already poised to have a product where towns were not run regularly because he understood that pacing as Crockett and Watts and others tried to expand and started running their towns less frequently. Not only did they not change the pace of their TV, in some cases they actually upped it. Um, Watts in particular, there's a lot of hot shotting and, and main event matches and angles and this and that. And to a fan in Monroe, Louisiana, who is used to watching a house show every week, Now, when they only get it every five weeks, they might feel like they're missing out on a lot of things. I think there's a lesson to be learned from all of that. Yeah. And you made a really good point. Like fans sometimes today complain like, you know, Bob Backlund had the title for six years. Bruno had it for even longer. You know, Nick Bockwinkle was the AWA champion for a long time. You know, why can't we have that now? It's because you have a weekly television show that is fast paced. And, you know, I couldn't imagine having the same champion in the WWF for six years. And if you run weekly, you have to pour gasoline on the fire and to make that happen. Right. They also had shorter title reigns or more, you know, title holders for that same reason. We look at Bill Watts. He was the perennial North American champion, but he lost it and regained it several times. Uh, Look at Jerry Lawler and how many times he held the belt in Memphis. They were long-running champions, but they would drop the title to build to a chase of them regaining it, whereas the WWF didn't do that, and then the AWA didn't do that. Again, that's another thing that those two territories in particular had in common that were different from the other places, and you know we can look at it and say, this is why. You know, and another one, the NWA champion back when, you know, Harley Race, Terry Funk, Ric Flair held it before it became, you know, centralized in JCP, those champions would appear so infrequently that you could have a belt on a champion for a longer time, unlike, you know, the regional championship, like the Mid-Atlantic United States title, the Florida state title, et cetera. Right. And that was, you know, the idea was that each territory could be exposed to that champion for at least one week out of the year. Many champions held that belt for more than a year, but the idea is it works in year cycles that everyone is given a year to sort of see how it works. And this isn't always true, but, and, you know, how well they do sort of depends on whether Dory, you know, Jr. gets a two-year run or a four-year run or or what have you. And of course, some territories, they show up more than once a year, but the idea is to make sure that the world champion is seen once a year and in every NWA territory. Exactly. So I want to talk more about your research. Like what, what are some of the biggest surprises that you've unearthed? One of the biggest surprises to me, so I mentioned, you know, uh, how I calculate the spot ratings and that whoever's in the main event of one particular house show for that show gets a 1.00, but then I add in a few weeks worth of bookings to come up with a number. 
What surprised me was that aside from the WWF champion and certain wrestlers at certain times like Peak Lawler or Peak Dusty, at any given point in time, most territories have more than one baby face and usually is you know three or more and more than one heel that rotate in and out of the main events night to night. Even Junkyard Dog is not in the main event every single night for months straight. He is in the main event of certain towns, but there are other times when another title match or major stipulation match will be in the main event of another town and JYD's match is second from the top. But they really did a good job of rotating talent in and out and so that you have several wrestlers capable of being in a main event at your local house show. And, and this way, if JYD isn't available, because remember, most of these territories ran multiple shows per night with split crews, you can't have JYD wrestling in three places on a Monday night. So they need to set up the Paul Orndorff's and Ted DiBiase's and you know Buck Robley's of the world as legitimate main eventers too, so that they can draw when put in those feature matches. That totally makes sense. Now, what wrestler... Through your research, made you say, or, or was there a wrestler that made you say, wow, I, I had no idea this guy was getting a push, or wow, I had no idea this wrestler was like on the undercard in this territory trying to break in? Well, the answer to the second question is tons and tons. When you, when you look at Bob Backlund working for McGurk as a preliminary wrestler in 73, you know, you're like, oh my God, I never knew that. But Everyone had to start somewhere. Even Dusty Rhodes started, you know, in the bottom half of the cards for a few years. As far as wrestling, I know got that high. One I will mention in specific, and that is Dennis Stamp. Dennis Stamp was a main eventer for McGurk in 1973. He was a main eventer in Amarillo at some point as well. And, you know, he unfortunately has just become the butt of people's jokes because of Beyond the Mat. But, you know, there were so many wrestlers that were given opportunities to main event territories. And again, if they didn't draw, they might be moved back down the cards or, you know, be sent on their way and go into other territories where they're slotted lower. But if someone has the ability, they will give them a shot. I I read Rocky Johnson's book. I was able to purchase it before it was, you know, pulled from the market. And he brought up something that I didn't really think about that, when a newcomer who's not an established star from somewhere else, but you know, a young wrestler that maybe is recommended to a territory from someone else, when they come in, they start at the bottom, they work in the prelims. And we can look at it in hindsight and say, well, that's because they were going to be built up with a series of wins. But that's not always the case. It's sometimes so that the promoter and booker can get a look at the guy. And if he just doesn't work, if he's not a good worker, or if he doesn't connect with the local fans, or maybe even if he doesn't fit in with the locker room, either, you know, literally or just as far as a, you know, looking at the roster and where he might fit in, they might keep him in the prelims. Uh, they might, even though, you know, if he gets a win his first week, the next week he might go to a time limit draw or might put, oh, you know, might go under a mid carder. Uh, you know, if they don't have it, they will not push them up the cards. And if they do have it, the next week they'll go up against a mid Carter and, and maybe get another win and, and keep moving up until their ability and connection with the crowd, you know, sort of peaks. So, you know, they, they're given the opportunity to rise as far as they can. And in the case of Dennis Stamp in 73, it's a lot due to attrition than anything else, because in early 1973, Bill Watts leaves and goes to Georgia. I believe Dr. X was the top baby face and he got hurt. So they almost didn't have a chance. Uh, they, they didn't really have anyone else. And I guess no one from another territory was available. So they put Dennis Stamp and Bull Bolinsky in main events. And again, maybe he was a placeholder in a stopgap, but he was a main eventer for a major wrestling territory for, you know, a few months. And, and that means something. And like I said, I want to have that back of the baseball card so we can look at a Dennis Stamp card and see, oh, he's more than just the guy jumping on the trampoline, hoping he's booked. He had his runs, he had titles, he had feuds, he, you know, he had value. He did. He was also a main eventer in the Amarillo territory. I am with you that that movie has become what has defined Dennis Stamp, because as you said, he was a main eventer. But I want to talk a little bit more about like how they used to bring in old wrestlers or back in the day, they would bring in wrestlers and some territories would take a look at the guy 
the WWF I grew up on seemed to do the exact opposite. They, you know, with very few exceptions, like if they were bringing in a wrestler to wrestle Bob Backlund, they knew exactly what they were doing with him from day one. And, you know, wouldn't it have been a slightly better world if it were more of a meritocracy, so to speak, you know, as opposed to, okay, you know, we're bringing in this guy for this role and here's what he's going to be doing for six or seven months. Well, I think if we understand the criteria that was used to determine who the challengers were, it was size above all else. Yes. And so that's not going to change anything. Um, But as I mentioned, the other end of that is if that wrestler doesn't work out, they're going to have one and dones against Backlund around the horn. And once they're done, they will be finished up very quickly. They'll be moved down the cards in the hopes that they quit on their own volition and get the message. And if not, they will be just, they will stop being booked. If they do work out, they get the rematch. And if they work out really well, they get the third match. And the WWF formula, once that's over, even if it takes three months or one month, they got to finish you up if you're a monster heel. You can't stick around and be put into a new role. But they use that marketability of having main event in Madison Square Garden to get themselves a nice spot in the McGurk territory or somewhere else. Yeah, there were a few exceptions. Like sometimes a heel would have the match against Backlund. And then he would get into a feud like in 81, 82, Greg Valentine had a post Backlund feud with Pedro Morales in 81. Angelo Mosca had the feud with Pat Patterson, but you're right. For the most part, you know, once a wrestler, you know, he would have nothing but wins until the series with Backlund was finished. And then it would be almost nothing but losses. Yeah, that was the formula that worked for that territory and it worked for decades. So, you know, who are we to say? You know, Neil Gway should not have been put in main events. That's their system. And they they knew how to market it to their fans. And of course, it was also a testament to the managers they had, uh, you know, the the three wise men. They knew how to market their guys and, and build them up. And so they always had, if they didn't have the skills in the ring, they had the mouthpieces to do the talking. Neil Gway actually got a main event at the Boston Garden. This is before I started going against Bob Backlund in 1980. I remember at the time, like watching it on TV, I'm like, I don't think this guy's really a main eventer. What are they, what are they doing here? Yeah, he might be the nicest guy in the world, but he's one of the guys a lot of people like to point out as you know the guy that got pushed beyond their abilities. But this is what they did. Like I said, it's a very organized and structured way of throwing shit at the wall to seeing if it stuck. And Neil Gway, unfortunately, did not stick. No, he did not. He was, uh, like I said, he he was a great big guy, but he was not much of a wrestler. Al, I'll tell you what, can you give one more plug to your podcast and your website? Yeah, so the podcast is called Charting the Territories, and like your podcast, it is a member of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Episodes come out the fourth Thursday of every month, so the next episode will be coming out on Thanksgiving Day. So that's exciting. You can uh, you can check out past episodes at chartingthepodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And the blog is chartingtheterritories.com, and it features a bunch of spreadsheets that I spend, I can't tell you, way too much time on uh, putting together and, and making, you know, the idea is to convey the information in a way that is easily understandable and absorbed by looking at an Excel spreadsheet. So you can check that out. And I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Al gets wrestling. That's L G E T Z wrestling. And why? Because nobody gets wrestling like Al gets gets wrestling. And what Al wants, Al gets. Al, thank you again for being on the show. You were a great guest. I want to thank everyone for listening. I want to thank everyone for putting up with me as my voice starts to give in. A friend of mine asked me, you know, what do I need to know about podcasting? I told him sometimes. Sometimes it's work. Sometimes you have to sacrifice things, you know, be on schedule, you know, not see the Red Sox. You have to podcast. And yeah, this is one time where I'm like, "Uh, I think my voice will get through it. I can fight through this and it's not good. But thank everyone for listening. I want to thank our producer, Luke Hippelman, for all the great work he does. This has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. We'll see you next week. This concludes our podcast day.